to all of those persons who are interested in civil rights and whatever you want to call the movement, keep pushing, keep going, set the record straight, and do it in a nonviolent manner, and do it until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like fire. in boys and girls uh it is your favorite uh weekly alabama politics podcast alabama politics this week josh moon and david person oh man have we got a good good show for you uh you know we'll see maybe our best ever um and and this time we may actually mean that <laughs> but, uh, uh we it's, it's not very often as well david and i were discussing before we come on it's not very often you get to say you're you're gonna have on as your guest a real life uh world hero, not just American hero, but a world hero. Um, and that is attorney Fred Gray. Uh, That's right. That, uh, Rosa Parks attorney, Martin Luther King Jr.'s attorney, uh, it's, uh, so, uh, was the attorney that for the, the, the Selma to Montgomery March that got that passed, was the attorney that got uh, Martin Luther King Jr. off on uh, tax evasion charges in the in the 60s in Alabama with an all-white jury, was uh, the guy that, uh, that basically integrated the schools in this state uh, and the colleges and universities uh, was the guy that led the, T- the Tuskegee syphilis uh, lawsuit and uh, uh, evoked a, 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 an apology from an American president, which is not something that typically happens. Um, and so, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it'll be it'll be what you think. I, I'm, I'm hoping. Um, and so we'll uh, Mr. Gray will uh, will join us here in, in a few minutes. But first, uh, let's uh, let's talk some Alabama politics and um you know, uh, let, let's let's start with our locals uh, here, okay. um, because you know you and I are both local to the Huntsville area. Um, mm-hmm. I know others are not. I know that the Huntsville area is gaining momentum in in terms of recognition around the state and around the country, and rightfully so. Uh, but I think people are are very quickly starting to pay more attention to the politics of this region up here, uh, where in the past, you know, we're, we're, we tend to be Montgomery centric, uh, in, uh, in that regard and, and maybe even Birmingham, uh, to, to a lesser degree, but mostly Montgomery centric and, and Huntsville has kind of flown under the radar for, for a long period of time, but the growth of late taken over as the, as the state's largest city, I think has changed that to, to a degree. Um, and now Huntsville has become a very vital piece of, of, this state, uh, as it probably should have been uh, prior to now, uh, as, it, as it receives national attention. And I mean, my God, the number of jobs that are and the number of industries that are here, the Toyota Mazda plant gets a lot of attention, but the FBI is sending in 3000 agents to live here. Yeah. And train. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, y- it don't plant bombs here. Uh, no, you know, because no, uh, no. that's, uh, that's what they're doing. That's the training mm-hmm. that they're here for. That's the, uh, you know, the very serious uh, types of the anti-terrorism training and things like that are, are, are moving here. This is going to be Quantico South, basically. Mm-hmm. I think um, that's a good way to say it, Quantico yeah. South. Yeah. I, I, that's, yeah, uh, as I believe, 
uh, you know, um, we had this debate where that's what we were going to talk about, this debate for Mo Brooks' seat uh, last night. And uh, I believe Dale Strong uh, and Casey Wardinsky, who were fighting for the Republican nomination at, for that seat, uh, they both talked about, uh, you know, the the FBI moving its training center here and, and kind of splitting it into, into pieces, uh, what they've been doing, because it's gotten to be too big. And uh, but, yeah, it's listen, this is an, an area that is is growing like crazy. And uh, it's a very smart area. Um, it's uh, the median income is is much much greater than it is throughout most of the rest of the state. There are pockets uh, in other places, but you know, I would I would think uh, the Huntsville metro area, you know, and the and the surrounding suburbs. I would bet that that is the largest area with the highest median income in the state. You know, I. I, I, I know think that's around, probably true. Yeah. But around Birmingham, South Birmingham, or the Mountain Brook area, Vestavia Hills, and some mm-hmm. other places, Homewood, and some you know th- those are very yeah. prosperous areas. No, no doubt about that. And and into into some parts of Mobile as well. But I'm not sure that there's that, that Huntsville now in these the way that it has expanded that mm-hmm. it's not a larger area. On into limestone because people don't when you say Athens a lot of times people think still of Athens as this little redneck town up, you know, mm-hmm. here, which rightfully is earned, uh, you know, reputation yeah. is earned. But uh, it's, uh, but the expansion of Huntsville, uh, yeah. in fact, Huntsville uh, goes into really actually Huntsville legally is annexed all the way into East Limestone County. Oh, so yeah. you can go from, and East Limestone is what, um, Five minutes, if that, from mm-hmm. Athens. Yeah. So, oh, it's yeah, or Not maybe even closer that than that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So you've got, uh, you know, you go from East Limestone County, you can drive, you can drive virtually, probably close to thirty miles due due east mm-hmm. before you get to say Montesano. Right. Right. Yeah. And then you go, let's say from. You know, uh, Meridianville or so until you get, you know, to probably south of Owens Crossroads. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, that's probably another 30 or so miles. I mean, uh, give or take, you know. So my understanding is that the Huntsville metro area now is uh, about, I think the figure that I was given was 200 square miles and this was some years ago Man. so it's probably it may be bigger than that now yeah yeah it's uh, and it's and, and like all big cities when they start to expand uh you know it, there's some weird stuff happens i i'll say this i you know i'm i am roughly due north uh where i live in 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 madison uh technically madison uh, which is is weird to me because uh, I'm basically due north of the uh, of the Mo- Toyota Mazda plant. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you go right out, I mean, just you know, a few hundred yards from my house, I tell you, I hit Mooresville Road, and I'm down, and I can get on the expressway now that loops and connects 565 with 65 right. uh, up up in the at the uh, Browns Ferry, what used to be the Browns Ferry exit. I assume it still is, but it's now an expressway where there's going to be. Uh, uh, extra large Bucky's. Uh, so I'm like two <laughs> minutes from uh, from the new Bucky's over here. So yeah, um, yeah. start doing Airbnb at my house so people can come go to the Bucky's. I think. 
and then there was supposed to be some zoo across the street from this thing as well, but I don't know what's going on there. Uh, I don't but know about that one. It, yeah. yeah. So anyways, man, I would say all that. And, and I live in Madison, yet somehow Limestone County, uh, yeah. which I don't really understand either. And yeah. my neighbor lives in Madison, Madison County. Uh, yeah. And then we kind of alternate. Now, I think I, we've discussed this before because they, they took my uh, they took my damn uh, recycling bin from me uh-huh. uh, here because I'm in Limestone County and not Madison. But, um, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting place. I, we say all that to say. This thing is kind of important. I think it should have more importance placed on it. This this debate that took place between Dale Strong and Casey Wardinsky should have more uh, importance than I think it has received uh, typically in the past. I think Mo Brooks kind of flew under the radar a bit um, and, and allowed him, help, kind of helped him to get elected uh, several times. And um, I think some more people are paying attention now to, to this seat that's going to go. It's going to be very influential in terms of national uh, defense contracts and federal contracts and the uh, the, the growth, the continued growth of Huntsville. And I think a lot of people are paying attention to that. And so these two gentlemen had uh, a debate last night and I've got to say it was embarrassing. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, I wrote about it. I wrote mm-hmm. a, I wrote a story just kind of, yeah. and it wasn't really a column. It was maybe a bit of analysis, but because, I mean, you couldn't help it because it, half of it was so idiotic mm-hmm. and, and there were just so many and, pointed and you, attacks. On and people. you're talking about the sexual stuff. The no, sexual well, the, attacks. Yeah, the sexual attacks. And then the, the, the just, you know, delving into national politics. And well, mm-hmm. Wardinsky talked about the deep state and election mm-hmm. security. And uh, uh, Strong, Dale Strong said his first uh, bill that he would approach in, in Congress, first thing he wanted to do was end the asylum program for mm-hmm. America. That's yeah. the thing that's concerning everybody up here in freaking <clears throat> Athens. Claims, and yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the big border issue. Big border crisis is causing a lot of angst among the folks in, in Athens and Rogersville and Florence. You know, I mean, yeah. what, I, it well, just it seemed to me to be uh, uh, I, the the folks at WHNT. And let me tell you, our boy, our boy, uh, Brian Lawson. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah, Brian he Lawson did a great job. Yeah, when you when you flip it to Brian Lawson, you yeah. there's about to be some heat coming, uh, you yeah. know, and, um, and and it's uh, he did a good job with that. He held uh, strong to uh, to some points on the on the Confederate monument issue, and um, yeah, I, you know, I, but, I don't, I don't you, you know these folks better. Well, uh, I was here. actually there. I mean, I was. Oh, oh you I, were there. Okay. Yeah, I was there. I was doing. Um, you know, normally they have me and Jay Towns and uh, Doctor Jess Brown in to do. Um, analysis and uh as was jay towns there no unfortunately uh he's still hiding from us huh (laughs) he's not still scared jay towns still still scared i know you're scared but but uh neither he nor just were able to be there so i was i was the only one there and um and i'll tell you that um and i don't know if you all well I, i imagine you could see it but um, I know from where I from where I was in the station, it was pretty obvious that uh, as the evening progressed, as that hour progressed, uh-huh. Dale Strong was becoming more and more. Um, I think the pressure was getting to him, and really? I say that because you could see the sweat mm-hmm. on his uh, brow. He was beginning to perspire. Didn't mm-hmm. see that with Casey, Casey Wardensky. Uh, for whatever that's worth. And I actually think the sentiment, and I I think I can say this um, ethically, 
the sentiment inside the station, inside the newsroom, Mm -hmm. seemed to be that the benefit of last night accrued to Casey Wardensky, not to not to Dale Strong. Yeah, Dale Strong actually um, came out probably looking worse. And I, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pinpoint one thing that I um, I mentioned last night uh, during my analysis, and that is that um, uh, I believe that the strategy that Dale Strong used was to try to gold. Wardensky. Mm-hmm. So he was the he was the one who introduced this this line of attack about uh, you know sex. He's the one yeah. who started talking about uh, you know he accused uh, Wardensky of seeking uh, using personal his sexual gratification That's from a, right. from a contract sexual yes. gratification. A reference to I guess the relationship that he formed with the woman that he eventually married after the death of his wife. That I mean, listen, man. Okay, look. There is there. It, it, does it make you pause for a second and say, "Ooh, there was a relationship between him and the CEO of this company." Oh, yes, it does. It does make you pause. But then you continue with the sentence, which is, "They started a relationship. He informed them. He resigned. He eventually married her." They are now happily married and have been for some. I assume happily married. They are. Yeah. They are married. They're married. Uh, yeah. yeah, they're married and have been for some time now. And what the hell are you talking about? These things happen, man. Normal people have. That's how normal relationships happen. You meet well, somebody through a job <laughs> somewhere, and you think, "Hey, that is a smart lady running this company right here. I'm very attracted to this mature, smart lady." I, you know, I. What? And, and he what laid are we it doing? out. I thought he laid it out. And I'm and let me be upfront. I'm no Casey Rodinsky fan, but I oh, thought he laid no. it out in a very reasonable way. You know, yes. he just said, you know, hey, you know, I was pretty much, you know, my wife had just died. I was pretty much living by my, you know, living a, yeah. a loner's life. My kids said, hey, you need to get out more. You need to deal mm-hmm. with people more. And so yeah. he he said that as a consequence of that, he began to associate. With uh, I think her name is Susan. He began to associate with her. Karen uh, is it Karen? Karen? I think it's Karen Orr. If, if I'm, I wrote a story about this. Yeah, I, can't, I can look I can't it up. <laughs> There's no reason for me not to, to just guess. I can just look it up. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm so, sorry, I, I can't remember. Her no, name, no, you're but, fine. It's a lot. There's a lot of names that go into this stuff, and especially when you're having to give opinion on the fly like that. It's it's a tough yeah. it's a tough gig. But uh, she um, anyway. I, I thought he laid out a reasonable scenario <clears throat> scenario that, as you just said. Most of us who are adults understand and can can accept as reasonable and, you know, to 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 couch, to use the terms sexual gratification to describe it, I think was was sleazy by Mm -hmm. Dale Strong. Um, He doesn't know for all he knows, they weren't even having sex. You know, for all he knows, they weren't even sexually involved until they got married. He doesn't know, you know, who would know? So yeah. that was sleazy. Karen Lee. Karen, Karen Lee. Lee. Is her name. Okay. Yeah. So 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 Miss Miss uh Miss Karen Lee Wadinsky. Mm-hmm. So then um so then that seemed to animate Casey Wadinsky. Mm-hmm. And he began, you know, because he's got this sort of monotone, almost robotic yeah. kind of demeanor, but man, that animated him and he started to then go on the attack. He called 
called Dale a strong a scumbag. Dude, and, Dick called him a scumbag right to his face. He called him a scumbag. I mean, know, we were turned and looked about, at him and said scumbag. This know. scumbag. Yeah, you know, you know, it was like we were, uh, we were looking around in, in each other great. in the newsroom. Are they about to fight or something? Yeah. <laughs> it was, I'll tell you this. I'd put money on Wardinsky if it came to blows. Oh, uh, he seemed question. like he's in pretty good shape over without there. But, question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My money would be on Wardinsky too. But yeah. I, I think the whole the, the whole exercise, it was it was it accrued to Casey Wardinsky's benefit because it showed it allowed him to uh, become more animated. It showed himself to be a fighter. And if mm-hmm. you notice, Dale Strong then began to after he had goaded Wardinsky to this point, he actually began to sort of level down. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, this must have been a strategic thing. But I don't think it worked to his benefit. I think it actually accrued to Casey Wardinsky's benefit. I'll tell you, uh, and I, I'd like to ask you what you think about this. Um, I, it, it seemed to me, um, having, you know, I, I've had some, I, I wouldn't say interaction, especially with Casey Wardinsky. I've had almost zero interaction with him. I've, I've seen him. I've heard him on, on, on things and uh, watched him be interviewed and seen him at state board meetings and things like that. Um, I've, uh, I've, I've seen county commission meetings with Dale Strong and actually been around him a couple of times. And I, what, what struck me, and this is my kind of overview of this, kind of walking into this thing blind, is it seemed like Casey Wardinsky, even though I think a lot of what he says is just batshit insane, um, he was, that's who he is. He's a genuine batshit insane, you know, a believer uh, on certain things. Uh, certain things I agree with him on, mm-hmm. uh, but in, 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 in some regards, um, at, you know, about half or, or more of what he says is just so off the wall crazy. It's like he's been sucked into this uh, conservative brain rot uh, stuff that he's bought into. And I believe he truly believes it. Where a lot of times it seems like Dale Strong is playing a part that he thinks people want him to play uh, instead of just being the person that he is. I don't think he believes his true beliefs will get him elected in this district right now. I um, think that's an I, excellent observation. And, uh, and I, think, I, yeah. I agree with you. I, I just, I, I believe that he is a much more, I, I, you know, I've been around him. I think he's a much more moderate person. Uh, that does not buy in to the Trump BS. I, I listen. He can say whatever he wants to say, and he can agree with certain ideals of Trump. But I, I know that he does not agree with with a lot of the things that happened with Trump, and that's fine. I'm, I'm not knocking him for that. I congratulations for being on that side of things. Right. Um, you know, but it just it comes off as in that setting. It comes off as phony. I don't know why he agreed to do it. I mean, he's he's up on Wardinsky well, in the polls. I why did he agree to that? Well, I you know I laid out I laid out some reasons why. And it, of course, it's speculative because I haven't talked to Dale about it. But I laid out some reasons why last night. Uh, one thing I mentioned was the fact that um, you know uh, Wardinsky, whether you like him or not, Wardinsky mm-hmm. has a tremendously high level of name recognition mm-hmm. now. You know, many of us assess that as something that's not necessarily uh, a positive because so much of the name recognition is rooted in negativity. Yes. But but like it or not, he's got name recognition. 
Um, and I think that that was a, um, I think that that may have been uh, a factor. He also has, you know, again, you know, this, this doesn't play with everybody, but in a Republican primary to be able to say, I worked for Trump, mm-hmm. it goes a long way with a yeah, lot of does. those voters. Yes. And so I, I think, I think the calculus may have been that this was something that, uh, perhaps he needed to try to offset. And mm-hmm. then of course, you know, going back to your point, I think there's a certain kind of arrogance that, that, that comes along with, um, yeah. someone like Dale strong who believes that, um, you know, who believes that he can pull off a charade because I think you're right. I I don't think he is as extreme as he portrays himself to be. And I'm going to tell you why I think that. Um, and I've been around both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wardensky, I've actually interviewed several times, so I got a good read on him. And, um, and I think that he is, um, and say, I don't know any other way to say this. He has the demeanor of what we call an SOB. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, but I think he's a smart guy. I mm-hmm. think he's smart, but I think he generally just doesn't give a, you know, a flip what yeah. anybody else He's very else abrasive. Thinks. He's very, very abrasive. Very. And I would imagine in, in, a, in a one-on-one setting, he's even more so. And, like, and especially one in which he has power over people. Right. I would I would bet that he is so unbearable to work for. And I've heard that from a lot of teachers and people who work with him, is that he is a very unbearable person to work with. So I've, I've had mixed reviews. I've talked to teachers or, or principals who seem to like him, but they were mm-hmm. really in the minority. You know, yeah. which, which says something. Yeah. And in terms of interviewing him and, you know, you and I do this for a living. I mean, you know, interviewing him is interesting because, like you said, he's very abrasive, but he's not rude as an right. interviewee. I mean, right. he wasn't rude yeah. to me, but at the same time, he would say things and you just think, hmm. That's really how you want to yeah. answer that See, question. And honestly, I'll tell you this: if I were, if I were at all, had you know, had somebody had hired me to you know pick apart Casey Wardinsky uh, in this thing, there are a couple of things that he did at the school system, in which one of which he talked about last night, which is. I can't, and I cannot believe nobody is is bringing this up. I mean, because Dale Strong in the past had brought it up and had a problem with it, and a bunch of people in Huntsville had a problem with it. Was this program where they were going through kids' social media posts and kicking them out of school because they thought they were gang related, and the racial overtones of that? I mean, I know that racism doesn't play great in the you know the Rogersvilles and everywhere else, but I mean. It was clear from what he talked about, about kicking gang, you know, a lot of them were gang members and we were getting them out of there. There was there was no proof of that. Right. They were going through kids Facebook pages and seeing them, you know, flashing money or whatever and and then booting them out of school and stuff. Well, and and maybe, he was proud of it. Or maybe even flashing gang signs. But here's the thing. Uh, again, like it or not, uh, especially um, I, I don't know so much. I don't think it's so much in play now, but there was a point in time in hip hop culture, mm-hmm. you know, where uh, the gang, you know, sort of emulating gang culture was a real big part of hip hop culture. And so if you see a kid who appears to be flashing signs, which was pretty popular at one point, yeah, um, it might be 
you know, you could easily draw a false conclusion about that child. So, mm-hmm. so I agree with what you're saying. Let, let me let me just finish one thing though. I was going to say. Oh, yeah, about, I'm sorry, I didn't about, mean to no, cut no, you no, off. That's okay. I'm sorry. Uh, I was going to say about Dale Strong. The reason I don't think he is as extreme as he portrays himself to be is that I was present at the funeral of Madison County Commissioner Bob Harrison. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those who don't know, <clears throat> Bob Harrison was the, uh, I believe he was the second African-American elected to the Madison County Commission in its history, I believe. The first, I think, was Prince Prayer. Uh, right. And then I think the second was Bob Harrison. And the, the, and so Bob Harrison died. Uh, Bob died in... Um, uh, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was less. I think it was in the in the mid two uh, mid two thousands, somewhere in the mid uh, before um, maybe two thousand ten or something like that. I can't remember. But anyway, Dale was Dale was at the funeral, and and so this is now this is a uh, a funeral, Josh. Right. That was in one of the biggest Baptist churches, black Baptist churches in Huntsville, Progressive Union Missionary Baptist Church, where uh, Bob was an active member and mm-hmm. a leader. And uh, the church was packed, you know, mm-hmm. people from all over. Overwhelmingly black audience. Dale Strong is there. You know, now. I know that white politicians will visit black churches Mm -hmm. and you would expect that something like this, that yes, you know, uh, you know, he's the chair of the commission. So yes, he would probably be there, but nonetheless, you know, you kind of, it's still somewhat of an anomaly to see a white guy, you know, in a, you know, you got a thousand black people and you got a handful of white guys there. Mm -hmm. Dale goes up to the podium and gives this beautiful, you know, uh, what I would call a eulogy, even though he wasn't the official, you know, he wasn't the eulogist, the pastor, the late uh, Dr. Wayne Snodgrass was, but, but he gives what is in essence, a beautiful eulogy of Bob, one that was so uh, compassionate, one that was so personal even. Mm That at the end of that eulogy, I thought, huh, this guy may be a little bit more, you know, he may be a little bit more moderate, a little bit more tolerant and accepting than maybe I had realized. Yeah. And at that particular juncture, I don't know if, if there was any, I don't remember at least that there was anything that really struck me with him as being, you know far to the right. I mean, this was before Trump and, and everything. Right. So, but, but anyway, I left there feeling different about Dale Strong. And by the way, he got, he was, his remarks were extremely well-received. Yeah. Well. Very well-received. Yeah. I, I agree with all that. I mean, you know, I yeah. agree. I think that he's, he's not 
what he is. And I mean, I just think you can read into that, you know, that he's not that. And I think last that what he was doing was trying to reach the people in the rural areas of that district. You know, the the folks that are out in the, uh, you know, the Rogersville, the small town, you know, places in between outside of the Huntsville uh, area, which I think he's going to do very, very well in. And so what is he's going to have to break in all those other people on those Trump credentials. And I think that's what he did that for. He was trying to, you know, he was trying to cut into that in some to some degree. And I, I, I don't know that they were very effective. I think that there would have been other things that they could have done uh, to, to be a bit more effective with that and, and talk about, you know, job growth and, and expanding that, you know, that footprint that Huntsville has, it has and the, you know, the, uh, the great economic boom that they've had over into more of this district. And I think that would have played a lot better than, than whatever the hell they were doing last night. But, you know, that's just me being sane, I guess, uh, you know, and huh, that doesn't win elections anymore, apparently uh, well, just being sane. And did you, did you catch the, uh, the Ashley Madison reference? <laughs> yeah. What was that? Okay. So do you remember, um, this was probably, let's see, this is twenty twenty. This was probably five to six years ago, Mm -hmm. at least. There was this big story about, uh, and it was a national story, about how um, somebody had hacked yeah, yeah, that the yeah the cheating website. Yeah, they right. hacked the cheating website, Ashley right. Madison, and released right. all the names and information and stuff. Yeah, that's right. And so one of the names on that that came out on that list was a local Huntsville political consultant. Oh, really? And he happens to be somebody who apparently, and I didn't realize this until uh, uh, Wardinsky said this, but apparently this local political consultant is is part of the Dale Strong camp. And so that's where that came from. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, again, it's pretty sleazy, I think, to throw that out there. Because, first of all, it's old news. Mm -hmm. You know, something that happened six or whatever years ago. It's just kind of sleazy, you know. And, and, you know, it it, it could leave people with the impression that uh, the gentleman, and I know him, but I'm not going to say his name, but I know him and, and you can Google it and, you know, dig it up yeah. if you want. Yeah. But I mean, it just, you know, it, it just um, to me, it's just it was a low blow. But again, I guess it showed how combative things really got and how much Wardensky, how how Dale, even though I think it accrued to Wardensky's benefit, how much it affected Wardensky that he would throw that out there. Yeah, man, uh, it's it was just uh, it, like I said, uh, overall to me, it was just, it's just a, it was just a very disappointing thing to watch. I mean, it was just it was just disappointing. I mean, it really was. It was just, you know, watching them kind of go back and forth and 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 leave out most of the the more pressing issues of that district uh, for for large sections of time, uh, you know, I thought that, like one of the more substantive uh, things that they talked about was the growth and of Redstone Arsenal and yes. how they were going to protect it. You know, they were they were both you know pretty good and well versed on that. But uh, otherwise, I mean, you know, when you ask somebody what's your first thing to do, you know, what what can you affect legislatively in Congress, and your first thing that you bring up is stopping the asylum program. I, you know, I no longer take you as a serious person. You're not. You know, you're you're basically 
literally the same guy that's leaving who got nothing done in 10, 10 plus years. You know, Mo Brooks got nothing passed in all that time, you know, despite all of his ranting and raving and being a crazy person. That you know, the only thing he did was get himself elected and get another check, you know, and 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 hurt the district along the way because he kept voting against some of the federal spending that was propping it up, and it's yeah. you know, it just I don't know. Like I said, it, it I just wish that that you know, and it, it will take voters. I wish voters would 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 be a little more cognizant of things that really really matter to them. I, I'm not telling you to vote for a Democrat or. What you know, a liberal. I would like it if you would, but you know, I'm not even saying that. Just vote for people that that get up on the stage when they have the opportunity and t- and talk about things that truly, truly matter to you. And what's happening at the damn southern border does not truly matter to somebody in Rogersville. Okay, that's not doing anything for you. That asylum program is not lying about it. It's certainly not doing anything. But he claims. He claims. That's what people are talking about, though. That's yeah, well, what he said. He said people, people are talking are saying, about it all over. He claims. You know, people are saying. You know, yeah. that's uh, the Fox News uh, intro into every story. And, people are and saying. By, and by the way, I just Googled the gentleman's name and um, and Ashley Madison, and nothing comes up. So maybe he was uh, successful in scrubbing that from the Internet. Uh, yeah, I hope so. Listen, that, that stuff, you know, I, I don't get into that. Um, you know, people have, it's not, if it's not illegal, it's not, and it, there's no ethics, uh, violations involved. Uh, you know, they're not misspending money to, to facilitate those sorts of things. Then, you know what people, uh, the way I kind of think of it is if I don't care about, uh, Bob, the guy that's going to clock in, uh, every day, you know, down at uh, a dock or at, a, you know, at, at some place working. If if I don't care about him doing it, then I don't care about anybody else doing this. OK, this these are things that happen in real people's lives and, you know, let them work it out. OK, yeah, now if they're so. lambasting somebody else and somebody right. brings it up. Well, then, OK, you know, it's fair game. But right. I mean, otherwise, I'm you know, that, I well, think it's just sleaziness. Well, and, he, and, and the other thing about it is, I mean, the gentleman who in question is not a, was not an elected official at the time that it's happening. Right. He's not an elected official now. Mm-hmm. You know, so, again, it's like, it, you know, it, to me. A thing like that has relevance if if it affects your job performance in some yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, but if it doesn't affect your job performance, then who cares? The only yeah. reason I cared about what Robert Bentley was doing because clearly it affected his job performance. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, and, there, and it was costing us money. You yeah, know? And the, that's yeah, right. and it was, yeah, and that that's why I cared about that. And it was you know, but yeah, this you don't. That's the other thing people don't understand. You don't know what's going on in, in in their lives. You don't know what's going on with that guy. I mean, I assume he was married. I, you don't know what was going on with him and his wife. Maybe they were both on there. You know, yeah, that's right. You know, you don't you don't know what's going on. Don't know. And listen, exactly. that's all legal, okay? And mm-hmm. you can not like it if you want to, but listen, I guarantee you, there are things that you do in your life that they don't like. So, you know what? As long as nobody's breaking the law, everybody's happy, leave them alone. Yeah. Leave them alone. Yeah. So, all right, let's uh, let's slide out of here. We'll be back in just a minute with uh, Fred Gray. All 
righty. Welcome back. Alabama Politics This Week. Josh Moon, David Person. As we mentioned at the uh, at the start of this thing, we have uh, with us now a, a true, uh, not just American hero, but a, uh, a world hero, I would say, in uh, Mr. Fred Gray, civil rights attorney. Um, uh, just... Uh, <laughs> a, a guy you, you wouldn't you could run down his list of accomplishments and at a point you would tell me to stop because they were no longer believable um i mean really uh i could not believe it when i first uh, got to know him and, and read through everything that he's done um uh, in the in the legal system in the south to, to fight uh, discrimination and segregation particularly uh mr gray thank you for for spending some time with us today Thank you very much. It's good to be on with you and appreciate what you've done as a journalist over the years. Thank you. That, uh, I cannot tell you how much that means, honestly. <laughs> uh, I really can't. Uh, listen, I, you know, I, I thought about a bunch of different ways to start this interview. Um, and, the, I, you know, I don't know what to go to first. And so I thought maybe the best thing to do is to just ask you, when you look back at, at your life's work now, what is the, what's, what do you immediately think of? What are you most proud of? What, what stands out to you that you've done, that you've accomplished, that's the first thing you think of? Well, that's, that's, that's hard to go and pinpoint any one thing. But let me just say, Looking back over what it is now, 67 years of the law practice, having represented Claudette Carvin, the 15-year-old girl who really was my first civil rights case, and then that was Rosa Parks, who was arrested on December 1st of 55, and I had known her since my high school days. And having represented Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who the community selected to be the spokesman for the group after they decided to get the community involved in it. And having represented Ralph Abernathy, who I was in college with at Alabama State, along with his wife and my brother Tom, who was also a member of the board of directors of the Montgomery Improvement Association. And then a little later on, the, in 56, the Attorney General Patterson decided to get the NAACP enjoined from doing business in Alabama, thinking that they were responsible for the bus boycott, which was wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then came the Gomillion v. Lightfoot case here in Tuskegee, mm -hmm. where when we finally was able to get a few African-Americans registered to vote in city elections. They changed the city limits from a square to what I described in my argument in the Supreme Court, a 28-side sea dragon going out to include whites and coming in to exclude blacks. And then uh, represent the people in the Freedom Rise and Freedom Walks and Selma to Montgomery March and the desegregation of all of the schools in the state of Alabama. So when you consider a career that long with that much things being done basically in one state, 
Mm-hmm. I'd have to let you decide which one. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty fair. It's a no. It, yeah, what? What? You know, you and I have talked a few times uh, about you know specifically about the bus boycott because I, I feel like that's when the 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 nation kind of started to pay attention to what was happening uh, in Alabama. Um, uh, what? When you look back at that time. Is there something that you wish more people knew about uh, that, you know, that maybe, you know, in the background, things that, it, that took place in the background prior to that bus boycott and the planning of that, that you wish more people knew and understood? Uh, what I think is most important as far as me personally is concerned mm-hmm. is those cases that I told you about and that I mentioned that the people that entrusted me to handle their legal matters. But it was all carrying out a personal commitment that I had when I was a teenager attending Alabama State. It was then Alabama State College for Negroes, now Alabama State University. When I was growing up in Montgomery and the late 30s and then in the 40s as a teenager in the 50s. There were basically two professions that black boys could think about as nice established professions. And I lived on the west side of town, born on a little two block street called Hercules Street that ran from Hill Street, the back of St. Jude School to then the Atlantic Coastline Railroad And that is to be a preacher or a teacher. And either one you did, you had to do it on a segregated basis because everything was segregated at that time. And I attended the Hope Street Church of Christ, and we had a preacher there named Sutton Johnson when I was about 12. And he was from Tennessee, and he thought that I could be a good preacher. And they said, I used to baptize cats and dogs and anything. And that was a Church of Christ school up in Nashville for Blacks. So somehow he thought I ought to go up there. Of course, my father had died when I was two, and I was the youngest of five children. And But uh, he arranged it and took me up there, and I went to school. I had a, a pioneer preacher named Marshall Keeble who was not an educated man, but he he felt as president of the school, there was two things that he dealt with. One, to raise money and to recruit students. So he would, uh, he decided he's gonna take these little boy preachers who were uh, beginning in their teenagers, go to these black churches of Christ in the Southeast and uh, raise money for the school and tell them, you send us your boys and we'll send you back a man. So I may probably was pretty good because the president took me around as one of his boy preachers. So I preached throughout the Southeast. When I finished there and came back home in 1948, 47, I was then ready. I knew a little something about preaching. I was going to go to Alabama State and learn something about uh, being a teacher. And I had to use the public transportation system. And I saw how our people were being mistreated on buses. 
including one man who had even been killed as a result of an altercation on the bus, and that was back before 1948. So I decided, and I didn't know anything about lawyers, but they told me that lawyers help people solve problems. And I thought that black people in Montgomery using the public school system, using the public transportation system uh, needed some help. And I said, I'm going to become a lawyer, but I'm going to have to finish Alabama State. I'm not going to apply to admission to University of Alabama or no other law school in the state at the time uh, because I knew they wouldn't accept me. I wasn't going to tell them all of what I was going to do, but I was going to let them know that I uh, was going to go to law school. And at that time, in Alabama, as in all of the southern states then, uh, you if a course was offered at the state university for whites and not offered at the college and in Alabama, Alabama State, Alabama A&M, Tuskegee, while it wasn't a state supported school, it was related, they would pay you a portion of your tuition room and board. The gimmick was you had to pay it first before you could get it back. But I said I was going to take mm. advantage of it, not pass, not not even apply. And I went to Case Western Reserve University. Make a long story short, I finished in three years and decided after I'd graduated in June of 1954 to stop by Columbus, Ohio, and take the Ohio bar just in case. And then in July, I took the Alabama bar and it was advised in August of 1954 that I had passed both and I was admitted to practice law in Alabama on September 7th, 1954, and I've been practicing ever since. I'm now ready to hmm. begin to carry out my mission of destroying everything segregated by crime. Right. Yes, sir. Attorney Gray, um, you lived through some of the most dangerous times in our nation's history for black people. You know, if it was, you know, the, the terror of Jim Crow, the lynchings, the assassination of prominent people like uh, Medgar Evers and Martin Luther King Jr. and even relatively unknown people like uh, Viola Liuzzo and Jonathan, Reverend Jonathan Daniels. Did it surprise you that because of how prominent you were in the civil rights movement, did it surprise you that you survived assassination? that you were not targeted for assassination? Well, David, I uh, maybe I was too busy trying to help people that I didn't think too much about being assassinated. I was aware, however, of the possibility, and I tried to be careful as best I could. And the few black lawyers who were practicing law in Alabama at the time I started, like my mentor, Arthur Shores, and Ozell Billingsley, and Peter Hall, 
up in Birmingham, and those were the three I worked with most of these early ages. Uh, they all had permits to carry a gun. I never would get a permit, and I never carried a gun. Matter of fact, I don't think I probably never fired a gun. But I concluded that if I were to have a gun and would end up hurting or killing somebody, I don't care how strong the case I may have tried to put on for self-defense, they would have convicted me and sent me to prison. So I thought it would be better to be careful, try to stay out of the way, and do the best I could. And with a great deal of help from a lot of people and the Lord, I was Mm -hmm. successful and didn't have too, too many threats, but I tried to be careful and still do. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I have one other question for you before Josh comes back in, Attorney Gray. Um, You were, you prevailed in front of courts and juries and judges at a time when uh, the odds were stacked against you legally and uh, and and socially. Um, aside from just your the, the obvious, which is that you obviously were a great attorney or are a great attorney, um, were were there any factors do you think at play with either the law or society at the time that that made it? Uh, help to make possible, along again with your your high skill set, help to make possible the victories that you achieved? Well, you know, uh, I realized that uh, and the my whole idea was we have a constitution of the United States of America and had the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which were basically the amendments that I filed cases under. And it's supposed to have been working equally for all citizens, regardless of their race, creed, or color. But that was not the case. But that did not mean to me that if properly interpreted under those same constitutional provisions and with Congress having the authority to adopt additional laws in furtherance of those amendments, that somehow, at least, we would have to be able to use the law and try to solve the problems because we certainly can't solve it with guns because they have more guns than we have. (laughs) Now, I never, how I could think at that time with all of these state laws on the books that we could get a court to interpret the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to do that, I just didn't think too much about it. 
I thought I'd take as the opportunity presented itself on each case as it came up to do the best I could. But the first thing, and I think I'm so happy I, I thought enough of it, is and I wanted to do the legal work for the people in Montgomery when they decided to stay off of the buses, because that was a part of why I was there. I wanted to do that. And then when they had that meeting at Mount Zion Church, which was then on Hoden Street, Hoden Stone, and uh, gave me the responsibility, said, now, lawyer, you have the responsibility of providing the legal services. We know you haven't been practicing long, but there are some other lawyers out there, but you are the person we're going to look forward to to get the legal resources we have. Because I knew about Arthur Shores because he had signed a petition so I could take the bar exam. I had read about Thurgood Marshall because Brown versus the Board of Education was decided on what, the 17th of May, 1954 just a month before I graduated from law school, I knew Mr. E.D. Nixon, who was, had been the president and the, of the uh, Montgomery branch of the NACP and the state conference of branches of Alabama. And I told him that what I thought I needed to do, I was gonna get in touch with Thurgood Marshall, let him know that you all down here have retain me to get legal resources and see if they won't help us. I called Thurgood Marshall, got him on the phone, had been reading about what these 40,000 black folks in Montgomery was doing. And he, he invited me to come to New York. And I said, well, Mr. Marshall, I know ultimately we're gonna have to file a lawsuit. We'll go through the process of these other things, but it's gonna be a lawsuit. And I'll prepare a little draft of a complaint in my little feeble mind is what I think, and I'll bring it up there. He invited me, I went up, he introduced me to his staff, including Robert Carter, who was his chief assistant. He assigned Robert Carter to me, anytime you need an illegal assistant, get into it with Bob Carter and we will help you. That was the beginning of my relationship legally with the NAACP, later with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and that relationship has existed from that time until now. That, um, you know, I, um, there, there's one thing, when I, we, we've talked a, a number of times, and the one story that always gets me, uh, that I tell, and it gets other people when I tell it, is when you were telling me about the bus boycott, and the planning that went into that and your first glimpse of Martin Luther King Jr. And your statement to me was Martin was fine. <laughs> and it just is, it's, it's so, you know, it, you, you just, it reduces it to such a human level and, and I think puts it into a context of there were so many things going on. We weren't worried about the greatness of Martin Luther King Jr. We were worried about our mission in this thing. Um, and I, is it, do you think people miss 
sometimes because they get so focused on, on, on the celebrity almost of Martin Luther King Jr. or Rosa Parks or whoever else that they miss how great well, that bus boycott was. Is that when Martin Luther King Jr. came to Montgomery and he came and believe it or not, became pastor of Dexter mm -hmm. in 1954. In September of 54, just a couple of days before I was admitted to the bar. Because I didn't know him then. Mm -hmm. And didn't know that he was being uh, a member. He was later officially installed, but he actually started it then. And it was only when I was going back, really looking at these days, I said, my goodness, this is real close. But this was almost, well, there's a little better than a year later when the Montgomery bus boycott started in 55. So he's been here now a year, but he had never been involved in any civil rights activities. And Dexter Avenue Baptist Church was a relatively small Black Baptist Church compared to some of the other Baptist churches there. Many of your educated people were members of that church. And just about all of them had good paying jobs, whatever you could call good paying jobs for Negroes, even for Black teachers then, because they didn't always get the same thing as white when they got. Uh, they would have been the last persons to file a lawsuit to end segregation because they were a part of the segregation, segregated system. Mm -hmm. And if their employer knew it, they wouldn't have a job. We didn't see any need for people losing jobs. We want all the black people we can to have good jobs. And I think if you go back and look at the records and look at the name plaintiffs in all these lawsuits, I don't think you will find any of them who were members of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church at the time the lawsuit was filed. So the matter of Dr. King being selected uh, had nothing to do really with all of that, but we had in Montgomery black leaders before Dr. King came. E.D. Nixon was there, who was known if you had a racial problem, that's who you go to. Rufus Lewis, who had been a former coach at Alabama State, and who was interested basically in getting people registered to vote, getting people elected, and then having them to be held accountable. But he wasn't too concerned about desegregating things. So we when it came up that Joanne Robinson, and she was the one who was so interested in getting the community involved, when it came up that she was going, that, that that's what she wanted to do. Uh, and after Mrs. Parks had been arrested and we had talked about what a person should do, and it had our meeting that we had had almost a year, and even had that meeting on December 1st, and uh, when we ended our little luncheon meeting, she knew I was going out of town. She was going back to the Montgomery Fair to work. And when I came back and found out, I had messages from everybody. Mrs. Parks had been arrested. And I had a message even from her. 
And when I returned her call, she asked me to come over to her house. Because she had been arrested, Edie Nixon had gotten her out with the assistance uh, of Mr. Durham. And when we sat down, I sat down and talked with her, and she said, now this is getting to be late in the evening of December 1st. She told me that her case was set, and this is on Thursday, for the following Monday at 8.30 in the recorder's quarters city of Montgomery. And I told her, I said, well, Ms. Parks, you've done your job. And I'm going to be back in touch with you between now and Monday, so we'll get your case ready to trial. But you know, Joanne Robinson's been talking for some time now about getting the community involved. And I think I need to go and talk to her before then. But first I told her, let me go and talk to Mr. Lewis, I mean, talk to Mr. Nixon, let him know that you have retained me. So I now officially represent you but I don't want you to get involved in whatever else the community has done. You've done enough, and we're going to take care of your case. I talked to Mr. Nixon. Mr. Nixon was a Pullman carporter. He was leaving town that Friday, and he would be gone for three days on a trip to Chicago and back. And he says, whatever plans I'm going to help you make, I've got to do it between nine the time I leave here on uh, Friday afternoon, I told him I was going to go over and talk to Joanne Robinson and see, because she was the one person that wanted the community involved. She lived on the other side of town. I went over, talked to her in her living room. And to try to make this long story short, we concluded two or three things in that meeting. One, that if we're going to ever get the community involved, now is the time to do it. Two, I told her, I said, it's going to take a long time for a suit, a case to go through the court system. She said, well, what we need to do is make a little, send out a little leaflet. And she said, I'll prepare it. Say another black woman's been arrested. A trial is going to be on Monday. Let's stay off of the buses for one day and meet at a church and we'll decide between nine then where and see what we do after that. So I said, well, now, if we are successful in the people staying off of the buses, we're going to need to have a plan as to how they're going to stay off. And we're going to have to have somebody who can communicate with them. She said, well, that's right. And we're going to need to have the support of the two black leaders who are in town, Rufus Lewis and E.D. Nixon. So she says, well, let me start. She said, I can tell you who we can get to be the spokesman. My pastor, Martin Luther King Jr. Haven't been involved in civil rights activities, but one thing he can do, he can move people with words. I said, well, that's who we need. That's fine. I said, well, Joanne, let me give you, we got to have Rufus Lewis and got to have E.D. Nixon involved in this. Let me give you a suggestion for a position for each of them. She said, well, what is it? 
E.D. Nixon was easy. He was a Pullman cop holder. He knew A. Philip Randolph, the black labor leader in New York, who headed his labor union, make him the treasurer, and A. Philip Randolph would help raise some money so we can keep people off the buses. He said, fine. What you gonna do with Rufus Lewis? A former coach, he owned the nightclub. The nightclub was named the Citizen Club. In order to get in that club, you had to be a registered voter. But he wasn't concerned about all those other things. However, his wife, Jewel Clayton Lewis, is co-owner of the largest film home in town, Ross Clayton Film Home, was then and still is now for Blacks. And if we make her husband chairman of the Transportation Commission, commission Committee, guess what? We'll have cars, they have drivers for those cars, and we'll have a built-in transportation system. And there's only one other thing you need. Well, you need a lawyer. Here am I, send me. <laughs> Those were the plans we made, but there was just one thing wrong with it. It couldn't come out at that time that Joanne Robinson was making these plans. If so, she would have lost her job at Alabama State immediately. She later lost it anyway. And I would have been disbarred before I was barred good. <laughs> so we had to plant the seed, give it to somebody else, have somebody else to present it to the committee and to the community. And when they all came out, it worked out just as we said. Martin Luther King Jr. was selected to be the spokesman at that meeting at uh, Mount Zion Church. And he was elected even before he got there. They ended up electing E.D. Nixon, the treasurer, Rufus Lewis, the chairman of the transportation system, and Fred Gray, the lawyer, and all of those things went into the plan, and the rest of it is history. Hmm. It was 366 days, right? Yeah, it was, it was 300, it was 366 days, right? Of, of bus boycott, when it 366 days that they, they kept the bus boycott going? 363 days, that's right, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. uh, I had contact with Dr. King almost on a day-to-day basis. And even after the bus boycott had ended, Dr. King had a problem because we had had this big trial in March and we just wrote a, just co-authored a book on it, title of it is Alabama versus King, that's the bus boycott case that we tried in March of 1956 that I uh, co-authored with uh, Abram and uh, Fisher. And when we started that case and 89 people were indicted, nobody knew anything about Martin Luther King. He had never made the New York Times but when that case ended four days later, he was a front page story. And not only while we lost the case, we won the war because he not only became an international figure, but started the beginning of a civil rights, what has developed into the civil rights movement. 
and it all started on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. You know, I, I, you have you have given us the thir- the thirty minutes that you promised. Uh, yeah, and I, but I, I had I had two other questions, and you, uh, if you could indulge me for just one second, um, and, and they're because they're very basic uh, questions. Uh, the first is, uh, I, I know I think I've told you before. I love Rosa Parks. I love uh, the story of Rosa Parks. Um, what you knew her probably better than, than anybody. What is one thing when you think back about Miss Parks, what's the one thing that stands out to you about her? Everything about Miss Parks stands out. And I know your journalists always want you to take one certain thing. All I can no, do I know, is find the facts. Yeah, and then I you know. decide which one of those facts you think <laughs> is the most important. Okay. Because every case that I handle for every person, I felt that, that to that person is the most important case there is. Mm-hmm. They don't care about all the wins you have on the others. All they want you to do is to win my case. But Mrs. Parks, quiet, unassuming spirit, but yet a person who understood exactly what she wanted to do. She was a real civil rights worker. And she did it and did it in such an unassuming manner that you would never think about it. But she did it, and she had the right kinds of spirit. And certainly if a person is going to protest, and if they're going to do something that appears to be contrary to the existing laws, even if you feel they're getting arrested, is necessary to do it, it's part of it. But she certainly set the pattern as to uh, the type of conduct that others would have as the civil rights movement developed. If you want to go and find somebody, look at Mrs. Rosa Parks, look at her attitude, see how she acted. And then if you act like that in carrying out your protest movements, whatever you want to call it, it will help. Yeah. All right. And and the last one, I I don't think I've ever asked you this, but I know that you and Dr. King obviously became close over time. Um, And you went through all of these great uh, trials and and all of this uproar and the threats and everything. When when he was assassinated, uh, how did you find out about it? And and how did that, when, when Dr. King was assassinated, uh, how, how did you find out about it, and how did that affect you? We were not surprised that there would be attempted assassinations on Dr. King because he was the one person out front. Mm-hmm. Lawyers, and this certainly this Fred Gray lawyer, was not one who wanted to be out front. I wanted <laughs> to do the legal work, but I didn't want to be involved in the only case I really made plans for as far as protest movement was a Montgomery bus boycott. And I only did that because Mrs. Joanne Robinson needs some help on time <laughs> of, the, of the essence and we couldn't do anything. So then but that's, what it, that's what it took in order to do it. And I'm just glad that I had enough sense to get the help that we needed. And then, of course, when Dr. King was assassinated, I was completely, uh, I was surprised, but yet 
because I knew there had been an attempted assassination for him back in New York when he did his first book on, on Strive Toward Freedom. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't surprised, but it was a real devastating event. But I think what we all have to remember is notwithstanding his struggle and all others, the struggle for equal justice continues. And we still have some serious problems ahead of us that we need to address. And that goes before us. And the question then is, where do we go from here? And how can we accomplish those? We started out as slavery with two basic problems. Racism, because all the persons involved in it were black people, and inequality. And we have been chipping away since 1608, trying to do away with racism and inequality, and we haven't finished it yet. We've done it case yes, by sir. case. We've done it as movement by movement, whatever you call them, but they're still there. And I say that if those persons who are interested in civil rights, they need to realize that we still have those two basic problems. If what we did in the Montgomery bus boycott can help, then fine. And what we did as we made those plans, one, we recognize we have a problem. And if we don't realize that racism and inequality is still a problem, then we're not gonna solve it. We came up with a plan, Joanne Robinson and I initiated it, gave it to the community and they ran with it. And that was the implementation of it. And then the other thing we realized was that these 40,000 African-Americans, each one of them believed that they could get it tried, could get it done and became a part of it. So if we're gonna solve the problems that we had, we're gonna to have to come up with a plan, we're gonna have to adopt a plan, implement a plan, be a part of it. And then we're gonna to have to continue to work. And it's just about like what John Lewis told me. And I met him in 19, uh, what was it, 1958 when he was trying his best to get an education and he came up to see Dr. King and he wanted to go to Troy State and we agreed to file a suit, but his parents, he was a minor and he couldn't do it. And then, but he still went on up to Nashville, went to the American seminar and became involved in the freedom rights and then became the great leader. And when he called me and had his assistant, his, Mr. Collins, his, uh, to his chief of staff, he wanted to talk with me once, final time before his death, about a week or so. And I asked him after we had talked and prayed, I said, Congressman, what do you want me to do? And what he said to me, he said, brother, keep pushing, keep going, set the record straight. So I said, to all of those persons who are interested in civil rights and whatever you want to call the movement, keep pushing, keep going, set the record straight, and do it in a nonviolent manner, and do it until justice rolls down like water 
and righteousness like my stream. All right. Man, you uh, you, you can't uh, you, you can't close any better than that. I don't think. Um, uh, so uh, listen, uh, I, I you know I can't tell you what an honor it was for you to come on uh, and spend the yes. time with us uh, today. Uh, I, I thank you so much for for everything you've done and and, and you know just spending the time has been great. Inviting me and remember there are three books out there now that can tell you a lot of information about this. First was my autobiography, Bus Ride to Justice, that really tells the story of through uh, 2013. Then there's the Tuskegee Sisters Study. And then there's the book recently uh, published last month, Alabama versus King. Read it, right. and you'll find out some more information on that. I, I hope I so. Forget, we'll, we'll... Our law firms still render the best legal services <laughs> there are. We <laughs> are available to continue <laughs> representing you and your bread and butter work as well as civil rights activities. <laughs> All right. Beautiful. That's, Beautiful. Uh, that is attorney Beautiful. Fred Gray. And hey, listen, now, seriously, the, the books that he mentioned, uh, we'll, we'll put them up on the website. Y'all could, uh, it, it's, it's, like, it's essentially history books and, uh, and that, that he's selling about, there. We need to preserve all of this history and the yes. Tuskegee Human and Civil Rights Multicultural Center and Tuskegee does that. We invite you to come to it and to support it. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you, right. Mr. Gray. Thank we, you. we really do appreciate you, it. And, uh, and that's, uh, you know, y'all, you're welcome for everybody else. You know, you're, anybody that's just listened to this, you're, you're welcome. So, uh, all right, we're going to slide out of here. We'll come back in just a minute and wrap this thing up. Back in a minute on Alabama politics this week. Welcome back, Alabama politics this week. Josh Moon, David Person, that uh, Fred Gray man. Yeah, you know that's uh, yeah, yeah. What can you say? It's all we need that's to say. It. Yeah, that's all we need to that's say. It. Uh, uh, you know, listen uh, before we before we jump in uh, and close this thing out. Um, I was going to tell everybody. I think next week is our is our last show before we take our our normal summer mm-hmm. break uh, and uh, and are off for three weeks, I believe this time. Uh, so we're not going to have one because just the, the way the holiday falls and all that, we're not, we're not, I'm going to be traveling that week. And then we, you know, who wants to, who really wants to listen to a show the week of the 4th of July? <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, and then, and then we're going to take the next week off just because we want to. Okay. So, you know. uh, and then, so we'll be back, uh, mid, mid July or mid to late July, the last two weeks of July, we'll have, we'll have shows back up and started new, new stuff. And, uh, we'll try to throw some, uh, some interviews up and, um, in the meantime, but, uh, just I wanted to, to mention real quick before we get to the right wing nut and close out. Uh, our friend Mo Brooks, the begging did not work. Um, it uh, Trump went ahead and endorsed Katie Britt after, of course, seeing polls showing that she was up like 20 <laughs> points on Mo. It was like endorsing a baseball team after they've won. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, I'm, I endorse Auburn to make it to the college world series. <laughs> uh, you know, it's uh, but uh, you know, I. 
you got to think, I, I don't think the Trump endorsement in that particular race is worth a whole lot at this no. point. Uh, I mean, I think people are where they are with with most of it, of that. And I think it just kind of comes down now to, to turn mm-hmm. out uh, there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and turnout is going to be a bit. Yeah, it's going to be low. I mean, it's going to be low. Yeah. Because it's going to be 100 degrees next Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, and whew, it's going to be something, man. But uh, I don't know. Um you know, what do you think? I mean, it, it's. I mean, I know it's Mo and uh, and, and Katie Britt, but I, I just, my money's still on Katie to pull it off, and that's um, and that's just because I think overall she presents better, um, and it's not because of the Trump endorsement, like you said. And and I've actually taken to sharing with people, and I think you're the one who who really got me thinking about this. I think it's way more important who Trump. Uh, who he uh, who he attacks than who he um, yeah. than who he endorses, and and even if you look at his endorsement of Brit, it actually about seventy percent of it is an attack on Mo. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's just a, just just annihilate Mo. Here's why I'm not endorsing this asshole. Right. Uh, but I'll endorse Here's all, this other person. It's fine. She's good. All right. So my money's still on Katie. I know uh, there are a lot of people who think that that Mo's going to pull it off just because he's got uh, he's he's redder and more right wing than she, than she appears to be. Even though she's tried really hard, I think to to mm-hmm. to uh, to slide over there. But uh, I, st- I that's where my money is. Where's yours? Yeah, I think Katie Britt is is done well. I, I tell you what, what I think really helps her out a whole lot is that she's from that Wiregrass area, and so she has the support of a lot of people down there, and she did really well in that area. And that is typically a very conservative area that would help out a person like Mo Brooks a lot. And the fact that she was able to beat him so soundly uh, down in that area really, really is is problematic for him. And the fact that he wasn't able uh, to win by a very large margin in his home county and in the district that he has represented for the last 10 years, I think it's pretty problematic for him as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just, it's, um, I just can't see, you know, uh, him being able to, to, to erase that deficit. I mean, it would have to be spectacularly low turnout, I, I think, because I do think that's the that that's the danger of a Mo Brook, kind of like with Roy Moore. Um, you know, Roy could count on uh, this floor, basically. Mm-hmm. He has a floor underneath him of, of voter support uh, that those people were loyal and they were going to show up and vote for him. And I think Brooks has kind of the same thing uh, there. And uh, so uh, if, if a lot of people don't show up, he can count on that support and make it closer than it probably should be. But I just, I can't see, I just can't see that he can overcome such a big, big deficit, well, didn't, you know, I mean, didn't he lose in 60, was it 62 counties? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, 62 yes, 62. Cause he, he got, well, actually, he, so he only won, he only won Madison, Morgan and Limestone. Oh, so he lost in 64 counties. Yeah. 64. Cause uh, yeah, she only won 62. Cause I think Mike Durant won one. Oh, almost. okay. Okay. But he lost in 64 counties. That's not, that just doesn't bode <laughs> yeah. well. And, you know, North Alabama politicians, and we've said this over and over, you know, North Alabama politicians just don't tend to do well statewide. So, yeah, you yeah. know, it's you just know. that association. And rightfully so in a lot of regards. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
<laughs> uh, uh, speaking of someone who's not going to do very well, hopefully, uh, coming up is our right wing note of the week, and that is Representative Barry Loudermilk from Georgia, uh, who apparently uh, led himself a nice January 5th reconnaissance mission with uh, some of the people that would later uh, go on to attack the Capitol and uh, talk about trying to kill Nancy Pelosi on video because they're smart. <laughs> um, and, you know, Man, they're in there taking pictures of the stairwell, you know, and all the reporters who cover the Capitol are like, the hell are you doing? You know, I mean, it's just like, listen, I go up that stairwell. I know what that leads to. Nothing. You know, it leads to offices where you're not supposed to be right. or think, you know, why would you be over there taking photos of this and videos and wandering around in those areas? And, uh, and you know, and it was at a time when the Capitol was closed to tours. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Uh, it it seems as though uh, Representative Loudermilk is going to have himself some legal issues, and and rightfully so. Uh, you know, he'll be able to put up a defense; he can defend himself. But looks like he's got some prison know, time man. potential for prison time in his future. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and he's and he's not the only one. So no, you know, no, I think there'll be some others. There are a lot of people that were looking for pardons out of that as mm-hmm. well, and I hope we get names of all of mm-hmm. them. Um, and I've got some ideas of some folks from Alabama who are on Yeah, list. me too. Um, me too. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's uh, slide out of here. All right. Uh, until next week, y'all be safe. Peace. Okay.